Thank you for checking out this podcast from Mountain View Christian Center, a place to connect. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in the book of Joshua. We're continuing our series on taking possession of the promise. And I hope that you have come to understand throughout this series, and I'm not sure whether I'm going to have one or two more installments on this series, but I, I hope that what you are beginning to understand through this is the undercurrent that God has made promises to you. This isn't just about what he did way back then. This is an old book, okay? A lot of, a lot of secularists say, well, you can't trust it because it's an old book. Well, you know what? It, it is an old book, and it's never been proved to be wrong. It's not inconsistent. It, it's an old book, but it's written for us. In fact, it says that these things were written down that they might be examples for us that we might learn how to serve and honor God. And so I hope that you're seeing through this series that God has made promises to you individually and even corporately, and he's got blessings in store for you and for each one of us. But if we are ever going to take possession of those promises, we've got to play our part. We've got to step up. We've got to grab hold with both hands. We've got to, we've got to run after the Lord with all that we've got. And then we can begin to see these things. That's why I think Joshua is such a, such a great example of things that Joshua went through. And this morning we're going to talk about another man by the name of Caleb. And I've titled the message this morning, The Extraordinary Life of an Ordinary Man. Any ordinary men or women in here today? Yeah, probably, probably all of us. I don't, I, I, I'll stop short of saying, is there any extraordinary men or women in here? Because, you know, some of you might just, yeah. The fact of the matter is most of us are, we're ordinary. There, there really isn't an awful lot that's so special. I mean, you know, of course, you're going to tell your kids and your spouse, well, oh, you're so special. Sometimes we mean it and sometimes we're insulting. But the fact of the matter is, is that we've all been created in the image of God and the likeness of God. And so when you clump us all together, we're kind of, we're kind of ordinary, right? And our lives are kind of ordinary. But I got to tell you, and, and, and I hope you understand by the end of the message today, that, that having an extraordinary life and doing extraordinary things, being extraordinary isn't so much about the circumstances of your life as it is about what you do with the circumstances of your life. Caleb was a man we're going to talk about to, today that there really wasn't anything extraordinary about him. What was extraordinary was the way that he reacted to the circumstances that were placed before him. So if you have your Bibles this morning, would you hold them up? Repeat after me, this is the Word of God. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And this message is for me. So let's go to Joshua chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. I'm going to read verse 6 through 15, then we'll jump down to Joshua 15. This is what it says, Joshua chapter 14, starting in verse 6. Now, the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, 
And Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me, <coughs> excuse me, made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved around in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the, that the Amalekites, the Anakites rather, were there. The Anakites were giants. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and that the cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. Then the land had rest from war. Now drop down to chapter 15, starting in verse 13. In accordance with the Lord's command him, Joshua gave to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, a portion in Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron. Arba was the forefather of Anak. From Hebron, Caleb drove out the three Anakites, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, descendants of Anak. From there, he marched against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. Lord, this morning, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the example of ordinary men who did extraordinary things. Jesus, this morning, as we take a look at your word, would you guide and direct us? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Pray your Holy Spirit go where I can't, to the very heart of each one. And Lord, I pray that we would all walk away a little bit different, being challenged, Lord, being encouraged to be extraordinary. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've already established that most of us, we're just, we're just ordinary. And you know, if you make it to 40 years old and you're just ordinary, you're by today's standards, that's, that's midlife. I can remember turning 40 almost a decade ago. <laughs> like seven, not quite a decade, seven. I'm not right, I'm not, at the, I'm not at the footstep of 50 yet, but I'm getting closer, I can see the door. But I can remember turning 40 and thinking, you know, in fact, my dad called me up on my 40th birthday. He called me up and says, happy birthday. I said, well, thank you. He says, how's it feel to be middle-aged? I mean, this is a strange question from a man who's been there. I said, well, gee, Dad, I don't know. How's it feel to have a middle-aged son? 
It got really quiet. So I got to thinking about middle age. Uh, you know what? Maybe I ought to have a midlife crisis. It's a thing to do, right? I mean, you get to middle age, you have midlife crisis. I think maybe I should have a midlife crisis. And I thought, what can I do with a midlife crisis? Well, I love my wife. I'm not interested in anybody else. In fact, the more women I meet, the more I love my wife. So, you know, a lot of guys, they go running after somebody. Nah, that's not, that's not for me. And I got my bikes. I got my toys. I don't need to go out and get anything else. I love my job. I get to, my job, I get to pastor. I mean, I get to pester people. I like that. I don't, I can't think of anything I want to do for a midlife crisis. And then I got to think, well, you know, I probably shouldn't have a midlife crisis right now because if I live beyond 80, then I've been premature. I'm planning to live to be about 110. That's my goal. My goal being 110 because I can remember celebrating America's bicentennial. If I make it to 110, I'll get to celebrate the tricentennial and then some. I just want to be able to, you know, take care of myself. So if I can take care of myself, if I can, I don't necessarily have to be able to continue to race, but if I can continue to ride, that would be, yeah, they got training wheels. I can do it. But I don't want to be premature in celebrating midlife because that would just be a waste. And then I'd get to the end of my life and people go, well, you wasted. So I decided not to have a midlife crisis. But, you know, 40 is about that place. And, and we read about Caleb and he says, you know, I was 40 when Moses sent me out. He wasn't a young man, but he wasn't an old man. He was just a middle-aged man. And there was nothing really about his life that was extraordinary. He was not a leader among the people. Go back and look. When Moses sent him out in Numbers, he was just a guy. He was just a man. And you might say, well, he, he saw some amazing things. He lived at an interesting time in the history of Israel. I mean, he lived in a, in a time when God was moving. You know, he saw all the plagues of, of God hit Egypt, and, and, and he participated in that first Passover, and he walked out. You know, I mean, they were forced out of Egypt, and he walked out, and they went through the desert, and then they, they got stopped at the, at the Red Sea, and the enemy came up behind him, and then God opened up the Red Sea. I mean, come on. He did some awesome stuff. He walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Yeah, he did. But so did roughly 2 million other people. There were 600,000 men. 600,000 men that left Egypt together. And that was men that were 20 years old and older. And in Exodus, it says 600,000 men plus all of their women and all of their children. So although he lived in an exciting time and an interesting time, and really a, a time where there was a lot of uh, turmoil, and, and he got to see some amazing stuff, it wasn't like he was the only one. You know what I mean? Two million other people walking through that. It's not like it's something just he did. So it wasn't like, it, like he was set apart. And he makes it to 40 years old. So they go through the desert. And they travel through the desert for, oh, close to a year. 
And Moses decides to, I mean, they are right at the front door of the promised land. And Moses decides to send 12 men to go spy out the land. Caleb being one, Joshua being one. We, we remember, you know, Joshua's got this book named after him. And, and he became Moses' successor. 12 men go and spy out the land for 40 days. And, and they come back and they give a report. And, and the report basically is like this. Yeah, it's a good land. I mean, it is really good. It flows with milk and honey. We brought some of the fruit with us. I mean, it took two guys to carry a bunch of grapes on a pole between them. You know, it, it, it's awesome. It's great. It's everything God promised. And Caleb and Joshua, they stand up and they say, let's, let's go in. Let's go do this. And everybody else says, well, wait a minute. There's giants there. They're huge. They're big. We look like grasshoppers. We, we feel like grasshoppers. We can't do it. And they caused the hearts of everybody else to melt. And Joshua and Caleb stood up again and said, yes, there's big guys there. Yes, it's scary. But you know what? The Lord is with us. We can do this. But Caleb and Joshua didn't even have enough influence. I mean, I'm talking about Joshua, who was Moses' right-hand man. Joshua, who led Israel into the battles that they faced. Those two men didn't have enough influence to sway the hearts of the people. The other 10 men swayed the hearts of the people, and so let's go back to Egypt. So really, nothing extraordinary about Caleb. So they go back, they turn around. God says, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let you people come in. They were afraid their kids were gonna be killed. God said, you know what? You're afraid your kids are gonna be killed? Every single one of you is gonna be killed. It's your kids that's gonna go in. You're going to spend one year for every day that the spies fight out the land. You're going to spend a year wandering in the desert, paying for your sins, paying for your doubts, paying for your fears. And then your children, when this generation's gone, then your children will come in. Nobody that's over 20 is going to go into the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. They're the only ones because they have a, a different heart. So if we're going to live lives kind of like Caleb, if we're going to understand what it is and, and what it means and how it, how it feels for us to take hold of this promise, we need to grab hold of a couple of things that I think Caleb grabbed hold of. Here's the first one. We have to keep hold of the promise. Caleb had heard the promise or going to the promised land. But he got forced out. You know, he, he got to walk through it. He got to see it. But because the people were stubborn, he had to pay another 40 years in the desert. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And it's not because God's mad at the good people. It's that we're a unit. You know what I mean? We're a unit. And so Caleb had to deal with 40 years. But, but prior to that 40 years... God made a promise through Moses and said, Caleb, although nobody else, you and Joshua are the only ones that are going to be over 20 years old that's going to go in. Although that's the case, you will go in. And not only that, Caleb, you're going to get all the land that you walked on. It gives me the, the idea that those 12 men, they really, they didn't go in a cluster and, and spy out the same land. I think each man kind of spied out a different area. And God said, Caleb, that area that you spied out, that area that you walked over, that's yours. 
Every place that you set your foot, that's yours. You saw it, you were excited by it. You were maybe intimidated by it, but your faith grew and that's gonna be yours. And church, God has made promises to this church and God has made promises to you, many of you individually, you know God has spoken to you at one point or another. And some of you might be sitting here saying, you know what, it's been so long since the promise was made that I can't even remember exactly what God said. Don't lose heart because he knows exactly what he said. And if you will hold on to that promise, if you'll keep hold of it and not let go, and if you'll take the actions that say, God is faithful and he will bring you into it. I've had dreams and I've had visions God has spoken things to me, and, and when I say you might not even be able to remember, there's things that I can't even remember the whole deal, but I know that God spoke to me. And there's been, there's been visions that I've had that I thought pertained to one area of my life, or, or honestly, I thought pertained to uh, New Life Assembly up in Toledo, because that's where we were ministering when, when God gave me that vision. And I thought, wow, this, this must pertain to this is going to be. But you know what? I'm not in Toledo anymore. And that promise hasn't been fulfilled. But God hasn't changed. And he knew 15 years ago where I was going to be today. I'm reminded of, of Joseph. You know, he had dreams. God gave him dreams and visions. And he also had interpretations and and. He had a dream, you remember, he had a dream one night of, of this wheat bowing down, you know, him and his brothers out there gathering wheat and, and all their sheaves bowed down to his. And the interpretation was that his brothers were going to bow down to him. And then he had another dream of the sun, moon, and the stars bowed down to him. And, you know, it was his parents and his brothers, and that didn't sit well with anybody. But that was, that was all that... Joseph could see, yeah, well, hey, you know, my family's going to bow down. And, and it didn't happen for a real long time. A lot of bad stuff happened to him. But you know how God works things out? Joseph went from, from you know, basically spying on his brothers for his dad to being kidnapped by his brothers, being beat up by his brothers, being sold by his brothers, being sent to Egypt, and he becomes pretty high-ranking in Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife lies about him, and he goes from being the number two guy in Potiphar's house to going to jail for something he didn't do. And in jail, he becomes the number two guy in the jail because he kept himself pure. He held on to the promise. And here's where it gets really confusing because he starts running into guys that are having dreams and visions, and he interprets their dreams, but his dream's not coming true. He interprets the dreams of, a, of the baker, and he interprets the dreams of a wine steward, and it happens just like that. But his dream doesn't come true. Until a few years later, the king has a dream, and Joseph is brought forward to interpret the king's dream. And then in God's timing, because Joseph never let go of the promise, he became the number two man in the nation. And a short while later, his brothers came and bowed down before him. You know, here's the interesting thing about how God works 
all Joseph saw was his brothers bowing down before him in the dream. You know who else was bowing down before him? The rest of the world, the rest of the known world, because as the number two man in Egypt, he was the number two most powerful man in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And anybody that wanted to have any food came and bowed down before him. Church, I say all that to say God's plans for you are bigger than what you have any idea of. He gives you just this much of it. Hang on to it. Let him fulfill it, but hang on to it. Don't discard it. Don't doubt. Don't worry. Don't fret it away. See, God, I know you made me a promise. I got to hang on to it, and I got to keep moving forward. Caleb kept hold of the promise. He said there in, in Joshua 14, 6, he says, you know, you know what the Lord said. It had been a long time. He, was, he says, I was 40 years old when he made that promise, and I'm 85 now. He lived longer after the promise than he had lived before the promise. But he didn't let go of the promise. Just because your promise hasn't happened overnight, just because it hasn't happened in the last five years or 10 years, doesn't mean that God's forgotten. And he will keep you around long enough to fulfill it. There's something else that I think is really cool about Caleb. You know, they wandered 40 years in the desert, then they went in. And he didn't immediately go after what had been promised to him, but he helped others get their promise. He wasn't thinking just about himself. For five years, he fought battles for somebody else. For five years, he let other tribes go before him. And he led the way. He waited until it was his time. We need to wait on the Lord and not try and push ourselves forward. But in verse 12, he says he, he had this sense that at 85 years old, after he had helped others settle, he had this sense that God's saying, now's my time. Now's my time. He said, now, now give me the hill country that God promised me. So first thing we need to do, hold on to promise. Second thing, don't overstep your bounds. Don't overstep the boundaries that God has placed in your life because God places boundaries in our lives for our protection. He puts them there to guard us and to guide us. You ever go bowling with kids? You get those little bumpers pop? I love those things because I'm not a very good bowler. I can actually gutter a ball with those bumpers up, believe it or not. It's, it's not in the lane I'm bowling. But Caleb didn't overstep the boundaries, but he approached Joshua as his leader. Now, now understand this. At 85 years old, Caleb is the oldest man in the nation. Biblical scholars estimate that Joshua was in his early 60s. Okay, he's the second oldest man in the nation. He is, but he's the leader. He's the one that, that God has anointed to take the place of Moses. It was Joshua, a very young man, was a man that was chosen to, to be Moses' successor 
but God kept Caleb alive. Now Caleb's 85 years old, and, and you know, by nature, by the way that we are, Caleb might feel like, you know what, Sonny, you know what, young man, I'm your elder. Listen to me. I'm old enough to be your father. But he didn't. He said, I'm 85 years old, but he didn't cross the boundary. He understood that Joshua was his leader. He said, Joshua, you know the promise. You heard Moses speak it. You heard what God said. You were there with me. You know everything about what was going on there. Joshua, I stand before you as an old man now. Give me my land. I think one of the problems that we have in, in grabbing hold of the promise that God has for us is that we, like, we, we want to overstep those bounds. By nature, we don't really like authority. And, on, and, it's, and it's even shoved into us and packed into us even tighter here in our culture in America where, you know what, we're, we're independent. You know, I'm, I'm free to be and I'm free to do and I'm free to pursue and I'm free to do all this stuff and, and I don't need anybody. Yes, you do. You do need other people. And you need people that are an authority over you. Whether you're working in a job and you've got a boss or you're a child and you've got a parent, isn't it kind of interesting that God gives kids to adults, not the other way around? You don't see two little five-year-olds raising up a 40-year-old. Well, sometimes. But God has created an order where there is a hierarchy, where there is leadership, and we need to learn to, to understand that and to respect that. God established leadership, and it's a part of his, his purpose, whether it's a king and subjects. You can find this in the Bible. There's, there's kings, and then there's subjects, or there's presidents and people or governors and people. And you know what? We're told all throughout Scripture that we need to honor those in authority over us. You may not agree with their politics. You may not agree with their spiritual perception. You may not agree with... 99.999% of the stuff that comes out of their mouth, but that doesn't change the fact that God said, submit, submit to the authorities that he has established. Why? Because there is no authority on earth that God hasn't put in place. All right? Now we vote. We're blessed in this country to be able to vote, and I encourage you, we got a vote coming up. Tuesday's voting day. Get out there and vote. Vote early, vote often. We vote, but yet the Lord establishes authority. And so we as believers have to submit to and understand that authority, whether you like it or not. There's authority in our personal relationships. There's authority between husband and wife. Wives, understand this isn't, you know, this is my, I'm not standing for saying this because I'm a husband. But scripture says, wives, submit to your husbands. But it's not in the sense of he's my overlord and he's my master. It's in a sense of responsibility and the order that God has established. It's not in a sense that I, as a, as a wife, I have to do everything he says. No, Deb is my partner. Deb is my partner, but she understands that that I'm going to stand 
and give an account for the way that I've loved her and treated her. And she's going to stand and give an account for how she's respected me and submitted to me. That's why it was, it was part of it. It was hard for me to, to go into ministry, to step into ministry, because I, I told the Lord, I said, we, we, Deb and I had talked about it, and she was like, no, no way. I don't want to be a pastor's wife. I don't, I don't want to be... I don't want to be broke all my life. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with people. You know, I just don't want to do ministry. I'm like, well, I get that, but God's telling me this is what you want. And so finally, I, I told the Lord, I said, you know what? I'm in. I'll go. You deal with her. So I'm not going to. Because, and, and I mean this sincerely, but I mean it with the utmost respect. I told the Lord this, because she is a good woman, because she is a good wife. And I know that if I press the issue, she will submit. But I don't want her to submit out of fear or frustration, Lord. I want her to hear from you that this is the direction that, we, that you've called us to. Besides all that, when things get tough and they get ugly, I want her to blame you and not me. And the Lord spoke to her. And you can see the results. We're in ministry. So, wives, there, there's, it's a very powerful thing that, that God has established that husband to be over you, not as an overlord, but as one who gives account, as one who leads by example. Parents and children, kids need to submit to their parents, and, and parents... You need to not be afraid to teach your kids how to submit. Sometimes we, we treat kids with kid gloves a little too much. Sometimes we, I'm, I'm all for training them up and letting them learn how to make decisions, but you know what? It's our responsibility to teach them how to make those decisions. It's our responsibility to, to guide them and, and direct them, and it's an, it's an order that God established. Children, submit to your parents. And Jesus even demonstrated this with his own submission to the Father. Jesus didn't just come up with this list of things and tell us to do it, but he led by example. He submitted, although, although he was God from the beginning, he didn't consider equality something to be grasped, and yet he submitted himself and said, here I am to do your will. We need to understand that, that submission and understanding boundaries is, is for our own good. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Writer of Hebrews writes this, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. So you've got people in your life that God has placed over you in a, in a position of authority, whether it's, whether it's a boss at a physical job or, or it's a pastor in, in, in spiritual leadership or it's your husband. God says, you know what? Submit. Submit so that their work is a joy because they, they have to give an account of everything. Submit so that their work is a joy and it's not a, a drudgery because, you know what, if you make it miserable on them, it's not going to be any good for you. We need to learn to submit. I think I lost half my notes. Well, you're going to get a short one today, huh?
Interesting. Number three, whether it was number three or not. Yeah. Get ready to go for it. Get ready to go for it. Get this. Caleb went for it, knowing that there was giants in the land. He knew that they were there. I, I love Caleb. He's this guy that he's never been a leader. He's nothing special, but he says, you know what? God let me spy out the land. I gave a report according to my convictions. God promised me I'm holding on to that promise. I'm submitting to authority, but I'm 85 years old now. I'm 85. I'm still strong. I'm still vigorous. I'm still ready to fight. Come on, anybody in their 80s? God's not finished with you yet. You are still breathing. God is not finished with you yet. 70s, 60s, 90s, whatever. God, if you are breathing, God is not finished. And you may not be ready to get in the ring and, and punch with your physical fist, but I tell you what, you can wear your knees out and pray. And if the Lord wants you to get in the ring and fight with physical fists, then he's going to empower you. He's going to enable you. But check out Caleb. He's 85 years old. And he says, hey, it's time. Give me the land. Give me the land that God promised me. And I, and I love his footnote. He says, you know there's giants. Let me at them. He's the oldest man in the country. You know there's giants. You know there's bad dudes out there. Give me a piece of them. I want them. Church, that's the attitude we got to have. Let's stop being afraid of giants. Let's start running towards the giants. Let's stop looking at all these, all these things that might be a big obstacle and might cause us problems. Let's stop worrying about the way that we were brought up and worrying about the things that we had to struggle with and things that we've overcome. Let's stop worrying about the, the addictions that we've got or the habits that we've got. And let's start saying, you know what? God has made me a promise. I know there's giants. Bring them. Because me and God, we're a majority. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Anybody remember Mr. T? I pity the fool. I pity the fool. Come on, we got to get a little bit of that Mr. T attitude in us. I pity the fool. Come against me and God. I know there's giants in the land, but my God is for me. I know there's issues. I know there's, there's insurmountable odds, but my God is for me. He went in knowing what he was facing. And he went in with this attitude. And this is what the fourth one is. I'm glad I just remembered it. He led by example. I don't know if that's exactly how I put it. Lead by example. Why? Because God's promise, you need to understand this, church. God made you a promise because you were the one to, to sit there and listen to him. But his promise for you goes beyond you. What did he say to Caleb? I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants after you. I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants after you. And so Caleb went in, and he went in with an intention and a purpose. I'm going to drive out the giants. But he also went in saying, I'm going to lead by example. So when we get down, when we get down into chapter 15, he makes this statement. I will give my daughter... To the man who takes that land. You know what he was saying? 
I've showed you how to do it. And I've got the most precious thing to me right here, my little girl. I will give her to the man that will live like me. I will give her to the man that will follow this example. I will allow you to marry my little girl. If and only if, when and only when, you prove yourself. But I'm setting a standard that I'm, mat that I'm matching. Dads, especially dads of daughters, but dads, you have got a huge responsibility. I'm sure I've said it before, I'll say it again, but statistically, a girl will grow up to marry a man much like her father. So if you wouldn't give your daughter to a man like you, you better change. It really makes me and Deb laugh a lot when we talk with Courtney, my daughter, our daughter. And she makes comments like, I think I married my dad. Because a lot of Canaan's personality quirks are like me. And the very first conversation I'd ever had with that young man, because I knew there was something special about him. I think it was a simple fact that I didn't get angry when they held hands. Any other boy that I ever saw her hold hands, it made me mad. I was ready to lay hands on him. There was something about this young man, and I could tell that there was something in my daughter's heart. And Deb and Courtney left, and I sat there and I talked with them. I said, hey, let me tell you. I've told Courtney this, and I will tell you this. I don't perform um, unequally yoked marriages. Meaning I won't marry a Christian to a non-Christian. I don't allow them to be performed in any church that I pastor. And so beyond that, I will never, never give my daughter in marriage to a man that doesn't love the Lord like I love the Lord. I've told my daughter that if she chooses as an adult to marry somebody that doesn't love the Lord, I will not give her away and I will not attend that wedding. And that would kill me. Because that's my little girl. And Cannon looked at me and he says, I know. Courtney told me. He said, Courtney's talked about that and it would kill her if you weren't at her wedding. So we talked about the Lord. I said, all right. He's married my daughter. He is my redheaded stepchild. My son. But I had to set the bar high and, and please don't don't look at me like I'm I'm nothing special. I'm not I'm not the extraordinary guy, but sometimes we gotta make those hard choices and we gotta draw a line in the sand, dads and moms. We gotta lead by example. We can't ever say do as I say, not as I do. 
We've got to do how we want them to do and teach them to do it. Because the promise for us goes beyond us. Caleb understood that this is for me and it's for my descendants forever. And if I'm going to have descendants, by golly, they are going to be men that love the Lord. And so if you want to marry my daughter, you're going to live like I live. He set the standard high. And Othniel, son of Kenaz, met the challenge. And here's where it gets a little bit interesting. If you were to jump into the book of Judges, which is right after Joshua, we hear the same story about Caleb and about Othniel, son of Kenaz. And then we go through about a chapter of finding out how Israel didn't obey God and how, how they were uh, put under the, the oppression of, of the people that they were supposed to get rid of. And it says, then God chose to raise up, when the people cried out, he began to raise up judges who would rescue the people of Israel. You know who the very first judge was? It's a fellow by the name of Othniel, son of Kenaz, son-in-law of Caleb. We've got to grab hold of promise, keep hold of promise. We've got to submit to the boundaries that God has given us. We've got to run after it, and we've got to lead by example, church. We've got to lead by example because a promise goes beyond us. Cool story. Cool story. We're going to take a moment at the end here as we close, and we're going to have communion today. I'm doing it at the end, and I just, I just want to invite our servers to come up, and I encourage you to prepare your hearts. I was, I was, as I was thinking this morning about what I wanted to say over communion, I, I, I just had this thought. You know, we talk about practice makes perfect. But when we come to communion, we celebrate what Jesus did, and he didn't have any practice for it. He didn't get a second chance. He had one chance. One chance to get it right. And he did. God didn't have a backup plan for Jesus. Jesus is his only begotten son. No backup plan. God said, either this works or it doesn't. And we are the beneficiaries of the fact that Jesus stuck it out and led by example. Jesus understood the promise that was held before him. So the Bible says that, that he faced it with joy. He faced the cross with joy. The things that were held out before him. So as he as our servers pass out the elements, I want to encourage you, hang on to them until we've all been served. You don't need to be a member of Mountain View uh, to participate in communion with us. All I ask this morning is that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've accepted him as Lord and Savior, slip your feet on the master's table. Let's enjoy this together. I also encourage this is not a time to be talking and laughing and joking, thinking about the game or whatever else. This is time to to allow the Holy Spirit to put his spotlight on our hearts. So let's remain in an attitude of worship and an attitude of prayer, and then we'll participate in communion together in a moment. For more information, you can find us online at www.mountainviewchristiancenter.net.